Hello and welcome back to the Lars Resort, uh, which remains a podcast with myself, Lars Watson, brought to you by Betson. Just me today on this episode. We're, we're, we're going to go a little bit more old school, I suppose. It used to be all me all the time. Uh, and I'm excited because it's, it's one of my favorite times of the season right now. What do I mean by that? Do I mean the international break? Well, no. Not really, especially as a Norwegian right now. The, the international break is not my favorite thing. I do enjoy international football. Uh, my sense is I actually like it a bit more than most people do, but I am increasingly of the belief, I may have mentioned this before, that it could benefit uh, from a schedule revamp. I think the model that we have now, where we have a number of international weeks scattered around the calendar, it just isn't actually ideal. I, I'm almost certain I've said this before, but you can have no time to build the narrative. You know, I always feel who's coaching what team, what, what teams are actually any good, you know, what's happening here. Um, if you want to properly pay attention to what goes on, during international week i really do feel like you almost have to study you almost have to like sit down and, and spend a couple of hours every time it comes around to say oh yeah that guy did. roberto martinez is in charge of portugal who knew there's uh, all this sort of stuff um and then it, international week happens for like two weeks and then it goes away again and then you've forgotten everything by the time it comes back so again you don't really get the sort of feel of the of the most overused word in football, which is the narrative, but it is a good word for like the storylines and the stuff that we kind of the reason we like football. I've always said this. I've I've got quite a lot of friends who are not football people, and who occasionally, when they feel more than usually clever, they will say, "Oh, what's so funny about twenty-two men running after a ball?" That's how all my friends speak. And I was just, um, well, obviously, if that's what you see, if that's the only thing you're seeing, then it's not exciting at all. But it becomes exciting when you know something about the people involved, about the clubs, about the culture, the heritage. It's about the storylines. You know, football's a soap opera more than a sport. I, I firmly believe that. And international football is... Tournaments are amazing, uh, but but the sort of qualifying stage, the international breaks, is like you're watching episodes that come here and there out of sequence and you don't get the feel of the soap operas i really do think some kind of schedule revamp where maybe all the qualifiers could be played and all the nations league games and that stuff could be squeezed into like maybe one or two long it could probably have to be more than one but in two much longer windows at some point in the year maybe that would be better i suspect the coaches would hate it and in qualification stages would be very vulnerable to injuries having a big effect. I mean, for the bigger countries, probably wouldn't matter. But most uh, sort of mid and smaller size countries, which is most countries, they, we, have certain players that we rely on more than others. And if suddenly half your qualifiers are played in one window and like one or two of the guys you rely on happen to be injured then, you know, that really does uh, cause trouble for you. So there would be downsides to this, obviously. But I, I think it would work. I think people would like it better. People would get more excited. Uh, I think that is my sort of big galaxy brain idea as to how to fix international football. Anyway, aside from all that, it's not at all what I plan to talk about in this episode. Um, aside from that, I said we were in one of my favorite parts of the season. And we are because we're back in the Premier League. We've played eight matches, which is, what, 20% of the season, just about. And... Um, 
eight, I feel, is a big enough number, a big enough sample size that we can start looking at the stats. Yes. Uh, we did it a little bit in the last episode with Peter. I started sneaking in some hot XG takes. Now, I'm going to try not to repeat myself too much, but, but certainly eight games in. Still a pretty small sample size, but it's big enough that I think there's some value to, to looking at some of the numbers here. And listen... We definitely need to be aware of things like some teams having higher harder fixture lists than others. That's one thing. And there's still some like randomness here, but it's interesting. And, and I should say it right at the beginning, as I always say when we talk about XG, we should be very, very clear on uh, what XG is and what it isn't. Like, because as XG has become uh, much more of a mainstream stat, you know, you, you see it pop up everywhere now, and you see more and more people speak about it. Um, you sometimes hear it referred to as if, like, well, the actual results of games is just luck and variance, whereas the XG is what actually happened, and XG the, the XG table is the real truth, which is, like, no, that that's not it. Like, having, having good finishers or a good goalkeeper, that's part of football. That's part of what it is. It's absolutely not true that XG is, like, the real answer, whereas results is, like, just what happened, man. Uh, that's not how sports work. But... Uh, what XG is is basically a way of counting shots or chances and then weighing them according to how big those chances actually were. So it does give you a good sense of which teams are functioning well, which teams are producing things in an attacking sense. If your attacking XG numbers look good, the team is probably playing pretty well. If you concede a really high XG number at the back, your team is probably not defending very well. So looking at it in that way, I think has a lot of merit. There's a there's a reason why clubs use it. You know, betting companies use it a lot. It is a useful indicator as to which teams are doing well and which aren't. Uh, and a very quick and easy thing that I like to do is to head over to the very excellent FB Ref website and just sort the Premier League table according to XG uh, difference per 90. Basically, the expected goal difference uh, per 90. I keep saying expected goal-goal difference, but that, that's kind of redundant, isn't it? It's the expected goal difference uh, per 90 minutes, uh, which is basically the XG a team has created minus the XG it's conceded, divided by the number of games played. That gives every team either a positive or a negative value, and I think it's a very useful sort of snapshot of how teams have have been uh, performing. And actually, just as a reference, let's do this. Let's hop back to last season and look at the table according to the XG difference last season. Because there's a couple of things we can observe, one of which being that Bournemouth were dead last, uh, even though they ended up on 39 points, I think it was, since they stayed up. Their XG difference was worse than Southampton's, who ended up on 25 points and finished bottom, right? So, so Bournemouth were, were, were a hot mess. Uh, Manchester United, in spite of finishing third, actually had the sixth best XG difference, so a bit of a warning sign there. I mean, again, I don't, I don't like using terms like they're in a false position and blah, 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 because, you know, over 38 games, I don't think your league position is ever that false. But the point is, they maybe weren't as good as that finish maybe maybe made them look like. Um, Brighton had the fourth best XG difference last season, which is mad. Uh, Arsenal actually had the third best in the end, behind Newcastle and obviously Man City. Now... None of this means that their actual league finish didn't count, because, again, that's not how sports work. But if you're the owner or CEO or sporting director of one of the clubs that, you know, had a, had a league table finish that was very different from their XG number, you should be at least aware of the fact that maybe you were a bit fortunate or unfortunate. And you have to, in order to maintain the position you were in, you might have to play better or you might have to, uh, you can relax and say, well, if we do the same again, we'll probably do better. So, for instance... 
Bournemouth sacking Gary O'Neill. I mean, maybe that wasn't as crazy as it seemed at the time. I was one of the people who went, hang on, that, that seems a bit harsh. But, but with the numbers showing that even though they stayed up, they were one of, if not the worst teams in the league, it does kind of make sense for this American gentleman, Mr. Bill, Bill Foley, his name is. Keep getting his name wrong, Bill Foley. Uh, it makes sense for him to try to do something. More of the same would not have been good. I mean, as it turns out, uh, the change hasn't been amazing either, but they've had a tough, tough fixture list, so you know maybe maybe things will pan out for them a little bit. It also made sense for Arsenal to go big in the transfer market, to not sit back and say, hey, we kept pace with City. This team is clearly great. No, instead they actually took the regression in the second half of the season quite seriously. In the second half of last season, there were eight teams in the league who conceded a lower XG number than Arsenal. By the XG, they had the ninth best defensive record in the league after the World Cup. Before the World Cup, they had the best. So that's a pretty big change. And I don't think it was all to do with William Saliba's injury. It started before that, actually. So it made sense for Arsenal to spend big on a defensive midfielder in Rice. He's kind of more than a defensive midfielder, isn't he? He's a bit of an all-rounder, but he, he offers them a lot defensively, that's for sure. And to add a new, another defender in Timber, like, they didn't they didn't relax and, and yeah, they, they figured, okay, if we're going to try to challenge City again, it's not going to be enough to try to be as good as they were last season. They have to improve, particularly defensively. So, similarly, I'm, we mentioned this a few times in conversations with Peter, would have been a mistake for Man United to look at that third-place finish and think, Man United are back! Uh, because the numbers were always a little bit iffy. Anyway, uh, we, we spoke a lot about Man United last episode, so let's not do that today. Let's jump back to this season. And if we sort the Premier League table by the XG difference so far, there are a couple of things that stand out. And you will immediately notice that there are some teams that are right near the top on XG who are not actually doing as well in the actual table, right? On XG difference, Newcastle have been the second best team these first eight games of the season, behind Man City, sure. But but Newcastle are eighth in the table and have lost three games. So that seems a little bit weird, uh, maybe. But and, and this is where I think the fixtures come into play a little bit. Uh, Newcastle did rack up a pretty uh, some pretty ex- impressive sort of big XG scores against Sheffield United and Burnley. As that and Villa in the first uh, game of the season, which was a bit of an odd one, but that's where a lot of their numbers come from. But maybe that's boosted their numbers a little bit. But but Newcastle have also played Manchester City, Liverpool, and Brighton. So it's not as if their whole fixture list has been easy. Far from it. And certainly from my eyes, in terms of just watching the team, they looked a bit meek in those games. But they've really clicked into gear last few uh, weeks. They've looked much more aggressive and on front foot and just kind of much more like the team they were last season. And their XG difference is the second best in the league. The, the, in fact, they've generated the highest XG in attack. Um, so, so no one has produced a, a bigger XG number going forward this season than Newcastle. So, so fair to say, Newcastle, even though they're still kind of low in the table, they're ticking along nicely. And I think you'd expect them to shoot up the table a little bit. Uh, that's a development I'm, uh, I'm expecting. Um, another thing that stands out is that Chelsea actually have the fourth best XG difference in the league so far, but are 11th in the actual table. So, so it's very tempting then to say, well, Chelsea are fine. They've just had some poor finishing and they've been a bit unlucky, but if they keep going, things will be fine. I think that could be true, but this is where there's also a couple of things I would like to throw in, which is I think if you look at Chelsea's squad, 
maybe we shouldn't be totally surprised that finishing has been an issue with this team because there's no established like top level striker here i'm guessing they were hoping Nkunku would contribute quite a lot maybe they were even going to play him up front i don't know but obviously he's been injured the other thing is the fixture list like so far chelsea have played luton forest bournemouth fulham and burnley like these are games you'd expect them to put up some decent numbers and it's kind of ominous that they haven't gotten points I, I suppose. They've clearly had quite a soft start to the season. I guess what I'm tempted to add to that is that I am very curious to see how Chelsea cope with this very, very difficult fixture run they have coming up, which we spoke about last week, because my theory is that this team might, might do a little bit better than expected against stronger opponents because they have a lot of fast guys in attack. I, I wonder if they might be set up to actually do better in games where you can counterattack. Games are a little bit more open than they have done so far against these sort of low block defenses that in some cases have really struggled to to unpick. But but as I keep saying, the, the balance might just be a bit wrong in this team. Too many youngins, not enough experience. But some of these youngins really are very good. So so for, for the next couple of weeks, going to be very interesting, I think, to follow Chelsea's progress or lack of it, uh, which, whichever one it ends up being. Also worth noting, and we touched on it last week, sixth in the XG table, but 16th overall is Everton. Everton. Now, th- there are some fixture list shenanigans here. They have racked up decent numbers against Fulham, Sheffield United, Luton, Bournemouth. So that overall XG number is definitely a bit soft. But given how much negativity there was around the Everton team just a few weeks ago, I think it's interesting that they're actually that high. Now, historically speaking, it's a bad sign for Everton when I'm positive about the team. While I've been doing this from the OG Norwegian pod onto the Lars Resort... I think Everton has been the club I've been wrong about the most times, probably. <laughs> should probably just throw that out there in the interest of full disclosure. But I repeat, I do kind of like what Sean Dyche is cooking. Spoke about it with Peter last week, so I won't spend too much time on it now. But you know, now they have Calvert-Lewin fit. They have a viable target man there. And they have a viable backup in, in Beto, uh, who's not winning the Ballon d'Or anytime soon. But uh, he's a big, burly, physical guy who puts himself about. So, you know, he, he, in the Sean Dyer system, I think he can be useful. And then you have Dukure playing that really goofy attacking midfield role. I kind of like it. Just get the wide players to fling a ton across us into these the big boys uh, in the box there. And I think a, a significant amount of chaos and carnage will, will ensue and, and they will get they will get points from it. Obviously, given the stadium and what's happening on the ownership side of things, that's it's really important that they don't go down. I really hope for Everton's sake that there's still time to stop this takeover by 777 partners. Um, any sort of cursory reading of the very good journalism that's gone into looking into these guys will tell you they should not own a Premier League club. Simple as that. Uh, another article in Yosemar uh, today, I believe, by Paul Brown and Philippe Auclair, worth checking out about the sort of uh, we- weird financial situation of the 777 partners. The more you learn about them, the weirder it seems that they have the money to buy, never mind run, uh, Everton. It just doesn't seem plausible. So um, I, I really don't think they'll, they'd be good owners for the club. Uh, we'll see what happens. But of course, if that falls through... It's not as if the club will be in a great spot if it does, because Mr. Moshiri seems either unwilling or unable to keep funding the uh, the ongoing situation. So it's all a little bit difficult, but at least I don't think they're going down with, uh, with, with Sean Dyche at the helm and the big boys doing the big boy things. I think it should be fine, and the numbers so far, of course, are, are very, very positive, even if the fixture list has been very soft. 
what else? Um, we discussed Tottenham's slightly ominous numbers last week. Not a ton to add to that. Tottenham definitely need to play better if they're going to keep winning games. Uh, they've been quite fortunate, and they have been able to tilt things in their favor. Again, I think this, there are times when you make your own luck a little bit, and I think there's a, more of a spirit in the squad there. It must be such a must be such a welcome uh, change for these players to to play for a coach who doesn't hate them. You know, <laughs> doesn't think they're a bunch of losers. I mean, he seems to actually quite like working with these guys. That must be refreshing. But yeah, underlying numbers slightly worrying there. Um, but but let's go down to the bottom. Down the bottom uh, is interesting. In so much as the bottom three in the table are also the bottom three on XG so far, which is worrying for them. Uh, they are Burnley, Bournemouth, and dead last Sheffield United. Sheffield United's numbers are terrible. I, I, I would be baffled if they were able to recover from this. There just doesn't seem to be enough quality in the squad, and they don't seem to be strong enough collectively to, to compensate. I mean, this is a team that lost, got promoted and lost some of their best players. And they've taken a few punts this summer. Uh, they've tried to be efficient in terms of the money they've spent in the market and not overspend too much. And uh, yeah, not, not not looking great for them, you, you have to say. Uh, but, but that all brings us to Luton, who are uh, 17th in the table, 16th on the XG uh, goal difference thingy. See, I did it again. No use saying XG goal difference, just say XG difference because, you know, the G stands for goal at the end of the day. Um, the one win Luton got at Everton, obviously very important for their league position, uh, but they're not marooned at the bottom of the table, neither in the actual table or the XG table, which is what I think a lot of people were expecting them to be. I think a lot of people looked at that squad and thought, yikes, this is going to be a slaughter. Uh, and it just hasn't been. Not really. Uh, it, it was close against Burnley. It was close against Fulham. They were the better team against Wolves. Of course, the worry is that they've just got one point from those three games. And if you're in Luton's position, if you have you know, three sort of winnable games where you conduct yourself well, you do kind of need to get the points. But, but yeah, Luton, not awful. What they do have, and, and I like this, they have the lowest average possession, the lowest pass completion rate, but win the most aerial duels per 90 in the league by some distance. So they, they know exactly what they're about. They're, they're not going to tiki-taka anyone anytime soon. They're quite direct. I actually think the striker, uh, Carlton Morris, has actually won the most aerial duels in the entire division so far. So he, he puts himself about, God bless him. I, I think, yeah, I, I admire Luton, whether they make it or not. I just think this is a, this is a squad that, on paper, is, is pretty far away from being a Premier League quality, but they're not being humiliated on a weekly basis. They're, they're making, they're, they're making a, a contest of it, and, uh, yeah, uh, full power to them. Uh, Manchester United, 10th in the table, 11th on XG. They've just not been very good, and we don't need to talk about that any more than we already have. Uh, West Ham are interesting to me. Because they're seventh in the actual table, but fourteenth on XG difference. You know, so, so a lot of people, myself included, have been very positive about West Ham. You know, early signs are they've recruited well, and and I know this isn't the the most objective barometer of things, but just me being a Tottenham sympathizer, I I look look at like James Ward-Prowse and Edson Alvarez and Mohamed Kudus, and I think yeah. Those are players I'd have been very happy to see signed for Tottenham, and they've gone to West Ham. So good luck to West Ham, I suppose. And in terms of style, I mean, West Ham have just gone full Moisey so far this season. There's one stat I like to look at, which is PPDA uh, passes allowed per defensive action in the opposition half. 
basically, on average, how many passes are the team's opponents allowed to make in their own half before they're tackled, foul, intercepted? Uh, it's a very rough but useful indicator of how much a team is pressing high up the field, right? How, how much are you allowing them to build up? Uh, the higher the number, the less your team is pressing the opponents, obviously. Uh, and so far this season, West Ham have the ha- second highest, not the highest, but the second highest number in the league, uh, just after Nottingham Forest. West Ham are basically not pressing in the opposition half at all. It's it's total Moisey. It's as low block, counterattacks and set pieces. And so far, it has been working for them in terms of results. But I would give a heads up to the fact that uh, only Bournemouth and Sheffield United have conceded a higher XG number <laughs> than West Ham. They are allowing their opponents a lot of chances. Now, why are they not conceding goals? Well, one of the reasons is their goalkeeper. Uh, so if we look at, okay, deep breath for this one. Post-shot expected goals minus goals allowed per 90. Ugh, that just sounds ugly, doesn't it? But uh, it's basically one way of judging how well the goalkeeper is doing is to take the XG of the shots that come in and are on target minus the number of actually actual goals conceded. And then you'll end up with a number that's either positive or negative, and it does kind of say something about whether the goalkeeper is actually stopping the shots that, that come in. And Alfonso Ariola's numbers for West Ham are literally the best in the league. He's been the best, uh, according to this metric anyway, which I know there's some debate about whether, you know, it's got some flaws in it, but it's an interesting way of judging how well the goalkeeper is doing from a shot-stopping perspective. And Alfonso Ariola's numbers are the best in the league, uh, with uh, Jose Sa of Wolves in second. Another, you know, starting to put up another big season, Jose Sa. Uh, of course, having a good goalkeeper, not against the rules of football. Like, that that's a, a, a goalkeeper as a part of your team. But if you're West Ham and you've conceded the third highest XG in the league and your goalkeeper is putting up the best numbers in the league, that's a little bit worrying. I'm not convinced that Alfonso Ariola is going to do that for 38 games. Is he the best shot stopper in the Premier League? Not sure he is. So um, that's probably going to start to even itself out a little bit. And that would worry me. Now, of course, West Ham could improve. This happens. Sometimes teams improve and then the numbers catch up with the results. But in truth, it tends to be the results that catch up with the numbers. More often than not, that's the way. So that's definitely one to bear in mind uh, going forward. Well, for me, when I wrote the betting column, I suspect... We might end up targeting West Ham for some both teams to score bets in the coming weeks because they are all right going forward and they have the James Ward-Prowse set pieces and they've got some quality players now. Uh, I'm just, uh, the defense is, uh, I think it's under-communicated how ropey they've looked at the back and how many chances they've allowed. Uh, do you know who's the worst goalkeeper, by the way, according to the sort of post-shot XG thing we just spoke about? It's Mark Flecken, the new Brentford goalkeeper, which I suspect is part of the reason why Brentford are in 15th, even though their XG difference has them in 8th. Mark Flecken, not a good start to life in the Premier League uh, for him. Um, Lastly, on the XG table stuff, Manchester City, you guys. Kind of interesting. Manchester City are top, if you just look at their XG difference. But that's entirely because of their defensive numbers. Their XG conceded is the lowest in the league, so they're still very successful at just kind of strangling opponents by just having the ball all the time. But their attacking numbers are not great. They're actually just seventh in the league for XG produced, behind Newcastle, Liverpool, Brighton, Aston Villa, Chelsea, and Tottenham. These guys, Brighton, Aston Villa, Chelsea, and Tottenham have all produced a higher XG number than than Man City so far. That is strange. It's, It's unusual, at least. And... I, I think looking at some other numbers here that I think tell the story, they've had the most touches of the ball in the middle third of the pitch in the league. Uh, 
In the attacking third, they've had the third most touches behind Arsenal and Spurs, while in terms of touches in the box, in the actual 16-yard box, they're all the way down in sixth. So I think that kind of tells you all you need to know about City. They're still keeping possession a lot, still passing it around in midfield, but they're not able to get into the box as much as usual. And we can compare this to last season where they were top for touches in the middle third, they tend to be, but they were also top for touches in the attacking third, and they were second for touches in the box, but they were just behind Arsenal. It was so close, it was almost like a negligible difference between them. So they were basically, yeah, top or incredibly near the top in all those brackets, but they're now sixth in the league for touches in the box. So they're not able to carve open teams the way they've used to do before Manchester City. They're just not getting it done. And I guess the most likely explanation is also the most simple explanation, right? Gundogan and Mares left in the summer, uh, De Bruyne is injured, and, and Rodri's been suspended for a little bit, so like their midfield just isn't what it was right now. Now, you can imagine that that might work itself out when Rodri and eventually Kevin De Bruyne comes back. Uh, Rodri, Kevin De Bruyne, and I guess Kovacic, or possibly Bernardo Silva in midfield, I mean, that should be fine. Uh, but with both Rodri and Kevin De Bruyne out, it just isn't working as well as it was uh, last season. And I think I think the absence of Kevin De Bruyne is hurting Erling Haaland in particular. Because we had all these long, long debates last season, like, will he fit into the Pep system? Will they play to his strengths? All this stuff we kept talking about. And even though he scored like a truckload of goals, I kind of feel like that it wasn't fully resolved. I mean, there was still a bit of a friction there. Uh, and and I, I always felt like Kevin De Bruyne, and, and I felt this very strongly when I watched them live, is that Kevin De Bruyne was the player who, more than anyone else, would just hit it to Holland, you know? Because we know uh, Guardiola, he wants all these short passes to build up the right structures and get all the players in the right position. We've, we've been through all this. But, but Kevin De Bruyne is the player who has the authority on the field and the personality to just go, you know what, if Erling's on the move and he's got space in front of him, I'm just going to put the ball in front of him. I don't care where Guardiola ideally wants me to play this pass or whatever passing structure movement thing we're doing. If Erling has space to run into, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to release him. And, and, and I think Kevin De Bruyne does that more than really anyone else on that team. So De Bruyne being absent is, is, uh, is hurting Erling Haaland for sure. Um, that's some of the stuff that stands out from the XG table at the moment. Let's look at some individual player stuff as well, because that's also kind of fun. Uh, we can look at uh, non-penalty XG per 90. always think that's kind of better to look at than just XG per, per 90 for players, because if you take a lot of penalties, that's just kind of not, not super related to how you're actually playing, is it? It's just suddenly you get a... I think the XG on a penalty is 0.78 or something. Uh, but yeah, something like that. Uh, but, but it's basically a way of measuring which chance, which strikers are getting chances and, and, and getting into position. And it, it will usually translate into goals. Uh, some strikers are, of course, better finishers than others. But looking at the top 10 here from the FB Ref website, non-penalty XG for 90, uh, the, their numbers are from Opta, as, by the way. Um, there are a couple of surprising names here. Now, obviously, well, not obvious, really, but Callum Wilson and Alexander Isak are numbered one and two. <laughs> so all the players in the uh, in the Premier League right now, it's Wilson and Isak are getting, are getting the most chances, which, of course, tallies very well with Newcastle having produced the highest XG number far so this season. Newcastle kind of flying. Their strikers getting a lot of chances. But actually, third highest non-penalty XG per 90, Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Uh, so DCL, as he is, or at least should be abbreviated to, DCL, really getting a lot of chances in the box for, just in general, for, for Everton. 
again, fixture list plays a part, and he hasn't played everything because he was injured. And but yeah, one to keep an eye on, I think, is just how just how good can Dominic Calvert Lewin be in a Sean Dyche team that's sort of vaguely functional. Uh, I think that's an interesting one. Ali Holland in fourth, of course, he's always going to be near the top, uh, whether the team is working well or not. Uh, Darwin Nunez in fifth, Nicholas Jackson in sixth, Evan Ferguson in seventh, Richarlison of all people in eighth. And then there's like a three-way tie for ninth between Bobby Dickard over Reed, Cody Gapko, and Beto. Now, there are some interesting things here, no? We have, we have two, maybe three names on this list who are very active, like hard-working forwards who will probably always get chances because they, they put themselves in good positions but are also not super clinical, right? We have Darwin, uh, Jackson, and Richarlison, who for me are in that kind of bracket. Jackson, well, he's pretty early with him. We haven't seen him play that much yet, but seems to be the case with him. Uh, now, usually, if a player has good sort of XG per 90 numbers but haven't been scoring a lot of goals, that is an indicator that they will start scoring the goals soon enough because if, if the chances keep coming, then the goals will usually keep coming. But we should probably not be mega surprised uh, that these guys are getting a lot of chances but not being super clinical. That's, that's kind of what, what we've seen from Darwin and Richarlison and, and to an extent now Jackson kind of suggests that that's where they are. And, and yeah, we should mention uh, Evan Ferguson as well. Being in the top 10 is, is impressive for a young man. Brighton are kind of using him sparingly and, and being a little bit careful and he's an unpolished gem and all that but wow he looks he looks really really exciting doesn't he um interesting to see if any of those three Nunez uh, Jackson or Richarlison in particular if any of them can actually get into some kind of scoring form or if just sort of very active forwards who get but miss too many chances is just what they are uh, I guess the next couple of months will, will give us some indication as to that expected assists per 90 like, I don't love expected assists as a stat uh, but it can be worth looking at um it's basically the sort of the the XG generated by passes that lead to a chance, uh, pretty much, or lead to a finish. I think uh, something like that. And and it's Dwight McNeil is actually the league leader for expected assists per ninety, which I guess is you know swinging those crosses into the box towards the big boys. Uh, but this is where it gets wacky. Uh, second place in the Premier League for expected assists per ninety minutes in the league, Christopher Ayer. <laughs> which I think for, for the Norwegians out there, very strange. I guess he's just played a lot of passes for Brentford that's turned into some kind of shooting chances. You know, he does get forward a little bit, whether he's playing right back or or right central uh, defender. In that sort of right-hand channel, he, he does move forward, and I suppose he's, he's, he has generated some chances. Um, behind those two, it's more the kind of names you'd expect. James Madison is third, Bruno Fernandes is fourth. Uh, let's look at some other things. Most passes into the penalty area so far. James Madison, not a surprise. Uh, definitely has a take into Tottenham as a as a fish to water and is very obviously the creative fulcrum of that team to the extent that I do kind of worry about whether Tottenham will be able to create chances if he's not around. Uh, but they do have some other guys, I suppose. Um, Bruno Fernandes, second place there, gets the ball into the box a lot. Dejan Kulusevski turns up here in third. Uh, and Enzo Fernandez in, in fourth. Enzo Fernandez actually has the most passes into the final third in the league uh, so far, uh, with Rodri in second and Luis Dunk, of all people, in, in third, uh, joint third with Ruben Diaz. But Enzo Fernandez kind of pulling the strings in midfield for Chelsea and moving the ball forwards. And uh, I, I'm going to repeat myself. I do think 
that Chelsea team has the makings of a good team if they can just get certain things right. There's one stat here I enjoy to, 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 to look at, uh, which is tackles. And you, you notice this right now, eight games into the season. If you look at tackles, successful tackles, and dribblers tackled, top of all of those categories is Luton Town's marvelous Nakamba. <laughs> a midfielder who just absolutely loves running around and kicking people and he does it with with great enthusiasm and and some efficiency uh, there in terms of tackles overall uh Juan Palinha second unsurprisingly uh, in that most successful take-ons in the league who goes past his man Ebera Eze of course even though he's been absent, he's missed a few games, but he's, he's top of that uh, league. Absolutely love the guy. Uh, Marcus Rashford is actually second, which is a bit of a surprise. He hasn't looked that great to the when I've seen him. But uh, And then there's Burnley's uh, Luca Kuleosho. Mm. Uh, definitely must keep more of an eye out for him. Try to watch some Burnley games going forward because he's uh, turning up well here for, for successful take-ons. And then it's the Wolves pair of Mateus Cunha and Pedro Neto in the next spot. Pedro Neto having a good start to the season in particular. Uh, most carries into the box, Dejan Kulisevsky, top of the league for, for most carries into the box. And, and that kind of tallies. I feel like I've watched a lot of Tottenham games in which Kulisevsky kind of runs into blind alleys, but the blind alleys are inside the box. Like he, he cuts inside and gets inside the box and then not a lot happens. But um, remains an exciting player, Kulisevsky, even if he's not quite top of his game at the moment. Um, and, and then after him, Raheem Sterling, Marcus Rashford, Jeremy Doku and also Pedro Neto uh, turning up uh, there. That was all very exciting, wasn't it? Some of it was. I mean, I, 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 there's only so much excitement that can be gleaned from Lars Reed's off uh, numbers from his notes. But I, I think some of those are some, some funny things and some surprising things. The Christopher Iyer expected that this stuff is mad. Uh, and it makes me doubt the whole metric. As uh, I guess he's moving the ball forwards for, for Brentford. Someone who's watched Brentford more than I have could uh, could get in touch because him being a creative mastermind isn't something I've really picked up on somehow. But yeah, that was a good little selection of numbers that, that give you some kind of idea of where we're at with this season before it, it springs back into life this weekend and with the premier league back in action the betting column will be back as well and and we've actually been doing rather well recently uh, the, the boosted treble has landed two weekends in a row uh, so we're on a hat trick with with that one which is great uh, i i did elect to stay clear of the international football this week uh, but we will be back when the premier league is back and uh, looking at the at the games this weekend there's one thing I didn't mention earlier with the with the XG table is that Liverpool actually has the second best attack in the league, according to the XG, but they're actually 10th in terms of XG conceded. Now, some of that will be to do with the fact that Liverpool have played a weird amount of time with 10 men so far this season. That, that will have affected their numbers uh, a little bit. Uh, but but I would still stand by my assessment that this is a Liverpool team that's really scary in the attack, but just kind of haven't found the right solution defensively just yet. That makes them a fun team to watch. And going into the Merseyside derby this weekend, given that Everton have kind of been doing stuff recently, albeit against weaker opposition, they, they have been causing people some trouble, I think Everton can score a goal in this game. I think they can go to Anfield and at least get a goal. Not as confident that they can actually get a result. Um, so that, to me, makes a Liverpool win with both teams to score a kind of an interesting bet here. Uh, definitely think Liverpool should be beating Everton. But with Everton actually putting up some interesting numbers in an attacking sense, and they have this sort of swing it into the big boys in the middle type of thing going on, which I think Liverpool could could have some trouble with. Um, 
Bets on are offering 2.53 for Liverpool to win and both teams to score. I I think that's going to go in the betting column this week. I think that is a fair punt uh, this uh, weekend. I'm also definitely uh, taking some Newcastle at home to Palace here. Uh, I'm hoping to get more team news from Palace. They seem to be potentially missing quite a lot of guys. A straight home win is currently priced at 1.46, which is a little bit boring, but but worth picking up, I think. It's uh, it's tempting to go Newcastle to win and both teams to score no. I mean, Newcastle to win and keep a clean sheet because Eze is likely to miss out, as I understand. I think he's ruled out. And without him, Palace are just not the same in an attacking sense. As well, Michael Olisa is uncertain as well. With both Eze and Olisa out, there just isn't a ton of things going on in that Crystal Palace attack. So you can get Newcastle to win and keep his clean sheet. That's priced at 2.40 at the moment. Um, Might play it a little bit safer and go with Newcastle to win over one and a half goals in the game. So any Newcastle win other than a 1-0. Uh, price for that is 176, which seems fine. There are a couple of different versions here that are are backable, uh, but I am expecting Newcastle to win certainly. So all of those options I think are interesting. Maybe just keep it simple and go for a straight uh, minus uh, one handicap, I, I suppose. But Newcastle just they're just kind of flying at the moment, uh, full of confidence, uh, producing chances. I think it's going to be really difficult uh, for Crystal Palace to get anything here. Uh, anyway, that's the end of that. First sort of solo episode I've done in a hot minute. Last four have been the Miles Coleman chat and two episodes with Peter. But back at it, uh, a solo traveler at my own resort yet again. Uh, we'll be having more of these again for sure. Uh, some normality kind of creeping back in here. Thank you for uh, listening, everyone. Uh, catch you later. Bye.